Now, if you're saved, yeah, that would be the only role you won't miss. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Now, I need another week on, uh, we've been uh, going through our stages of spiritual growth, so don't stone me. Uh, I need one more week to finish up fathers or just, so we're going to hit First Timothy tonight. And I hope you're not too disappointed. But uh, I've come across some things there, and I just, I just need a little bit more time. So take your Bible and go to First Timothy, First Timothy chapter two, and uh, I'm going to pick it up here in verse eight. First Timothy chapter two and verse eight. <clears throat> so glad you came back. It's uh, it was winter this morning. It's spring this afternoon. It might be summer before the week's over. But it just keeps it real, amen? I don't think it's really frozen. I don't think the ground is really frozen, has it? If that's all right. Glad you came. Let's pray. Father, we sure love you. Thank you for Jesus Christ. And Father, thank you for these people who came out. Lord, give their time. Lord, to get something from the Word of God. And Father, they need something to get them through uh, the next couple days. And Father, this is a very unforgiving world. It's a wicked world. And, Lord, it's an evil world. That's what you said. So, Father, I pray that you'd help us, Lord, as we look at your word. Uh, Father, I pray that you'd open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of thy law. And, Father, I confess to you tonight that without the filling of the Holy Spirit, Lord, I'm nothing but wicked, sinful, and ignorant. So I pray, Father, you'd fill me with your spirit and bless your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, First Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. The Bible says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere... Uh, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And we left off on that thing this morning. That whole thing about lifting up holy hands has to do with surrender, surrender. And uh, we said this morning, you know, uh, uh, if the, you know, cops, you know, pull you over, draw on you or something, you, you put your hands in the air and that, that, that's, well, of course they don't shoot you, you know. I don't know if they'd shoot you in Osco County. They might, who knows, you never know these days, but... <clears throat> Suppose if you looked uh, sketchy enough, they'd shoot you. But uh, a good way not to get shoot is to put your hands up. Amen. And we went over to First uh, Kings chapter eight and verse twenty-two. You don't have to turn there. That's where Solomon he's uh, he's uh, he's dedicating the temple there, and he's uh, opening up the altar, and he gets out there and he puts his hands up and he surrendered to God. We went over to Psalm chapter eighty-eight. And I gave you these this morning here, but we're talking about uh, lifting up holy hands when you pray. And uh, that's a weird thing. And it's weird because we don't do it. We have, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, those of us here gathered tonight are Bible believers. Amen. There's, there's no doubt in my mind. And uh, if you're not, you won't hang around this place very long. I'll just put it like that. Amen. You won't. But here's the thing, even in our Bible-believing mentality, we're unbiblical <laughs> in a lot of things, if, if you're willing to admit it. And here, this is one of them here. And uh, we, uh, let's pick it back up in Exodus chapter 17. I think that's the best place. We're talking about Amalek. Exodus chapter 17 and uh, verse 11 and 12 there. And Amalek is the, the greatest type and picture of the flesh in the King James Bible. Uh, Amalek there, and of course Moses, he's fighting the Amalekites. Uh, he's actually up on the hill, uh, and uh, he had to raise his hands up, and had to have that staff in his hands. And uh, he was told that if he kept his hands up, then uh, Israel would win. Uh, but as soon as they went down, uh, then Israel would lose. So let's read that one more time. I know I read this one. Let's pick it back up and grab a thought and go. It came to pass, verse 11... Uh, when Moses held up his hands, that Israel prevailed. When he let down his hands, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, uh, the one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And, of course, verse 13, And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So, and uh, that's the, Amalek's a picture of the flesh there, and Moses had to have help, and you're going to have to get some help, you know, and you're going to have to pr uh, learn to pray for one another. And uh, Moses had to get Aaron and her to help him there, and you say, well, why do you have to get Aaron or her to help him there? Because the flesh is weak. Uh, you see that Moses, he couldn't do it on his own, 
and you can't do it on your own either. And uh, you're going to have to have someone help you pray. You see what I mean? Uh, don't discount your age. This is a great time to learn how to pray. And this is a great time to say, hey, you know what, I want to pray about this this week. Will you pray with me? And if you can't get together, uh, then, uh, then pray for it separately, but pray together separately. Does that even make sense? You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, I'm going to pray about this thing here, and, and I'm going to keep this thing in prayer. And, you, you know, we've got a handful of people in our, our church has got a diverse age. We have very, very few um, middle-aged people. We're either a young church or we're an elderly church, all right? You say, why? Well, the attacks on the men, number one, and the attacks on the working man. Now, I'm not saying that you younger don't work, but you know what I'm saying. And, uh, and for whatever reason, we don't have that uh, depth in the middle age uh, category. Uh, but we got a lot of people uh, that are up in age and they're, they're not well. They can only come every once in a while. And uh, no matter what you think about it, that's going to be you one day if the Lord don't come back. You see what I mean? You say, so what do I take away from that? Go to church while you can. Because there's coming a day where you'll want to go to church and you can't. You see what I mean? Multitude of people. I've heard some people say it. I, I wasted this many years. I did, this, I did my thing for this amount of time. And now I want to go to church and I can't. COVID was a great uh, place where uh, a lot of people learned that. They got all afraid about a bug. And that's fine. Stay home if you don't feel comfortable. I understand it. I get it. But you ought to go to church when you can, man. And that goes in that whole uh, line of thinking. It was at 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, do things while you can before winter sets in. And, uh, <clears throat> but there's a great application there. Uh, and there's another one uh, about prayer. Uh, Jeremiah. Uh, in Jeremiah 7 and Jeremiah chapter 11, two places, he lifts up his hands. Uh, but the one I want you to look at is in Hebrews chapter 12. Talking about this thing with prayer. Lifting up holy hands. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Our generation has yet to see uh, young men and women who have given themselves to prayer what the Lord will do with them, do through them. And he'll always do more through you than he will for you. Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, 12 verse 12. Well, before we get that, you see up there in verse 1, uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and uh, verse 1. And of course, this... Uh, uh, this is in reference to a backslider when we get down to it. But in, in, in 12.1, well, he's telling us to run the race, right? Uh, lay aside the weights. In verse 2, he's saying, looking unto Jesus, you know, get your focus right. In verse 3, he's saying, consider him. And that thing goes all the way down there to verse 11. Now look at verse 11. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Amen and amen. <laughs> I added the amens in there. Uh, nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Now watch verse 12. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. You see that? Lift up the hands which hang down. Those are those hands that should be praying. And that's a picture of a backslider. And, and Paul saying, look, uh, you quit serving God. You quit, you, quit, you, quit, you quit being right with God and you quit your praying. And he says, now lift up those hands which hang down in the feeble knees. He's talking about your, your position, your posture in prayer. Look at verse 13. And make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. And uh, what uh, he's saying here is, says, look, the reason you're getting chastened is because you let your hands down. That's why you're getting it. And the best way to get back in fellowship with the Lord is to start lifting up your hands in prayer again. And that's what he's talking about. You get out of the will of God, you say, how do I get back in? Start praying. Start praying. Uh, you don't worry about it. You don't kick yourself around the block 50 times and never let yourself off the mat. You just start praying again. Now, here's something else about your prayer life. Uh, Paul, uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, uh, those holy hands, uh, those holy hands, uh, lifting up holy hands. You know, he's, he's talking about having a right attitude. The right attitude. And you know what the right attitude is in prayer? It's total surrender. The right attitude is total surrender. Jesus Christ said uh, in the garden, not my will, but thy will be done. And that's what Christ said. And here's the thing you got to realize that when it comes to prayer, unless you surrender your life, you'll not get many prayers answered. 
It ain't going to happen. You'll start praying on one thing and you get distracted and you'll quit. And you'll run off three, four, five years and go, yeah, I prayed for that. It never took place. You quit. And unless you surrender your life, you won't get your prayers answered. Um, <clears throat> you know, there's people out there, would you, you know, would you please pray for me about that? Everyone wants prayer, you know. Would you pray for me? Would you pray for my husband? Would you pray for my wife? And, would you, you know, would you pray for my, you know, people come up to you and say, you pray for my boyfriend to get saved? Well, quit living with him. <laughs> you don't want prayers. You just want, you want to feel good about the sin that you're living in. Do right, and that's holy hands. That's praying with the right attitude. Uh, something else you can't pray with and get your prayers answered. Look at uh, back First Timothy 2 Timothy 2.8. I'll therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands, he says, without wrath. <coughs> so you can't have wrath when you pray. You can't be angry at your brethren when you pray. Uh, wrath belongeth to who? Belongs to the Lord. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. So wrath is a reference to the petitioner's attitude towards his fellow man. You catch that? Wrath is a reference to the petitioner's attitude towards his fellow man. You got something, we preach about bitterness this morning. You got something wrong with a brother or sister? Without wrath, if you're not right with your brother or sister, you can't pray right. You can't do it. I didn't say you had to agree with everybody. You don't have to agree with how they tie their shoes, how they tie their tie, how they wear their, you know, socks, or what kind of socks. I'm not talking about that foolishness, but you can't have aught in your heart against your brother. Amen. You can't be harboring bitterness and expect your prayers to get answered. It ain't going to happen. You got to get that thing right before you even pray. And that sure would stop a lot of prayer meetings, wouldn't it? Look at verse 8. It says, without wrath and doubting. That's hard, ain't it? I mean, you ever get down to pray and you're like, okay. You know, try to get it above the ceiling. Uh, That's your attitude towards God answering your prayer. You know what I think? You ever go to God sometimes and pray and, uh, you know, try to convince God that he needs to do what you're asking him to do? You ever try to convince him? Uh, I mean, I do, and that's kind of strange, I know. A, a lot of times I'll, uh, I'll get up to preach, and I'll be praying, Lord, uh, use me, help me, uh, break me, and mold me so I can be a blessing to, the, to these people here. And then most of the times, uh, <laughs> I don't believe he's going to do it. <laughs> I'm just being straight with you. You say, what is it? That's doubting. And uh, that's terrible. What is it? I'm doubting. And then when he does it, he, it seems like it should have never happened. And when he uses you, you're like, well, maybe that really didn't happen. You know, maybe, maybe it was just, just coincidence. What is that? You're doubting me. You're doubting me. <clears throat> I don't get too many opportunities, but when I go and preach at other churches, and they're good churches, but they're not like our church. They're not. Uh, when I preach here at our church, you all respond. And I know exactly who I'm preaching to tonight. I preach here, and you all get with it, and you respond to what the Lord wants you to do. It is an abnormal to have a dozen of you all at this altar doing business every single Sunday. That don't happen at all the churches. Now, I preach to some churches. You can preach to the cows come home, and they just look at you like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Not what you're doing either. But uh, I get a chance to preach somewhere else. It's almost like sometimes I get up and uh, it's like I'm putting a damper on the stove. And that's how I know God called me to preach here. This is my church. This, this is the pulpit God gave me, amen? And I might get a chance or two or three or whatever to preach somewhere else, but the, my pulpit's not out there. My pulpit's not that camera right there. This is my pulpit and you are the people that God put here. But a lot of times, uh, you know, I preach somewhere and I, and it just like, just kind of rolls right off, you know, just rolls right off. And man, there ain't nothing like coming back home and getting in, in my own pulpit here. But you know, uh, the Lord comes sweeping through here quite a bit. You know, here's the thing: the Lord's made a real habit of swinging in through here a lot since 2014. 
I remember when the Lord first uh, brought us here, it was, uh, man, it was weird. It was weird because the Lord, uh, <clears throat> when the Lord brought our family here, uh, not only did he have to deal with my wife and my children, because they all hated me probably for wanting to come, in, in a sense, you know what I mean, they're leaving all their friends and all that stuff, but he had to flip the switch inside of me. He did. That's called the enabling. And uh, when I got over here and I'm shaking like a leaf and actually thinking I know, know something, I didn't know anything at all, so the Lord flipped that switch and all of a sudden now all that training and all that study and all that stuff is all of a sudden starting to come through like a, like a pipe. But the Lord comes sweeping through here quite a bit. And when, I, and when I pray to this day, you know what I battle? I battle the temptation to doubt within my old heart that God's actually going to use me. God's going to do something. Uh, some of the men, we pray in the back room there. You know what we pray? God, do something with us. God, do something with this church right here. We're not praying that it becomes some famous pristine chapel or some museum, but just use us. That's what we want. That's what we pray. God, use us. Help us to be faithful, whatever it is. And Paul says here to pray, lifting up holy hands. There's your surrender. Without wrath, that's having the right attitude and no strife in your life. Listen, if you're, if you're at odds with somebody, man, you might as well not even try to pray until you get that thing right. And then doubting. Don't doubt in your prayer life. Why? God can do something if you don't doubt. Now look at verse 9. <clears throat> Bible says, In like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, now, I want you to see here in verse 9, it says, in like manner. You say, in like manner of what? Verse 8. Uh, you see that? So you can pray anywhere if your attitude is right. Amen? And you can get your prayers answered anytime as long as you don't have wrath towards man and as long as you don't doubt God will do something with your prayers. Paul's already laid that out. And so Paul starts off the next verse saying, in like manner. And in like manner is the fact that somebody has to have the right attitude towards God. You see that? And now he's going to de uh, deal with a woman and how that woman should dress. And that's hard to get for some women. I understand that because wrath jumps up, doubting jumps up, and does the Bible really say that? And they begin to doubt and they get the wrong attitude. So, you got to see here in verse 9, when he talks about in like manner also, he's talking about you got to have the right attitude when you approach this thing here. He says, in like manner that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. And this defines how a Christian woman should adorn herself. And adorning means how she, how she ought to dress. So the discussion here in verse 9 and down through here is how a woman adorns herself. Uh, not what she can and what she can't wear. Did you catch that? This is how a woman is to adorn herself, not a dress code. You got to get that. Because if you're not careful, gal, some of you, you'll, you'll put up this wall that the Holy Spirit can't even get through, and you'll miss actually what the passage is telling you. Now, this word modest, uh, here, here's what it means. <clears throat> it means proper. Uh, that word modest, it means not forward, not forward. You know what forward means, don't you? Uh, gentlemen, you ever meet a woman that was forward? Uh, you know what that means. It means not bold. Uh, it means not arrogant, not lewd. And lewd, of course, that means dirty or loose. That's what that's talking about. It means moderate. It means uh, not boastful, not excessive or extreme, one way or the other. Did you catch that? One way or the other, excessive or extreme. See, what happens is in our, uh, what's uh, my, my, my brother's message he preaches there? Oh, man. Thank you. In reactionary theology, <laughs> what happens is, is all the Bible-believing Baptists, what they do is they, uh, they go, well, there you go. A woman has to, you know, they can't dress like the world. So then they go absolutely nuts the other way. So they put every woman in a tent, you know. Now listen, you ought, you ought to be not excessive or extreme one way or the other. And uh, now listen, I believe that a woman ought to dress modest enough to know that she's a woman, amen, but with sense enough to know that she's a lady. 
And there's a difference between a woman and a lady, and it's determined by how they dress. Now look, any preacher gets talking about this thing right here, uh, some, some gals are going to get mad at him. Now let me show you this thing. <clears throat> now I'm not, I don't think I'm going to be drawing stones and people are going to be throwing them at me, but you might get upset, but we're not trying to go that direction. We're trying to help you out. First Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. It's not talking about Levi's or culottes or skirlots or whatever the fire it is that gals wear. Don't wear. I don't give a rip about any of that stuff. I'm interested in what the Bible says. First Peter chapter 3. And the reason I kick a lot of that stuff is not because I'm against it. It's because uh, a lot of our Bible-believing Baptist brethren, they have replaced thinking with a dress code. And they're just stupid. Amen. And you don't want to be stupid as a Christian. Amen. First Peter chapter 3. I'm not going to take you into the Old Testament to, to prove some opinion that I have. I'm just going to preach the Bible. I'm going to let you, let you wrestle with it. <clears throat> now look at 1 Peter chapter 3. And let's look at this thing and let's, uh, let's try to learn something from the old King James Bible. 1 Peter 3.1, the Bible says, Likewise, you see that word again, You wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. Here, conversation uh, sometimes means talking and sometimes means a way of life. Look at verse 2. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. All right, verse 3. Who's adorning? There it is again. Adorning, that's exactly what Paul is instructing Timothy on when he says, uh, 1 Timothy 2 9, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. But notice what Peter says. Who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel. Now look, that doesn't mean your wife can't dye her hair. It doesn't mean your wife can't wear gold. And that doesn't mean that your wife can't wear apparel. That's stupid. Uh, The holiness used that verse and they use that as a proof text that you can't wear gold, ladies, and you can't dye your hair. But they just take two out of three because they're really dumb. Because if you read that verse, if you can't wear gold and you can't dye your hair, then you guys can't wear any clothes either. You see how stupid that is? You see what I mean? Putting on, It's right there. And, uh, but they're ignorant. <laughs> Peter's saying, look, <clears throat> when, you, uh, when, you got, when you wives do that, when you put on the gold, when you dye your hair, when you put on the apparel, you don't make that your adorning. You don't make that the beauty. That stuff is all exterior. But where's the beauty? It's interior. And today in the church, we've messed it up. Uh, We've lost and left modest apparel. Look at verse 4. But let it be the hidden man of the heart. You know what he just said there? He said, don't let the exterior be your beauty. He said, let your beauty come out of the hidden man of the heart. And you know who's hiding in your heart? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that thing? It says, But let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament. Now, if you want to see uh, if a woman's dressed right, you don't look at the slit on her skirt. Amen. You don't look at her hemline. You don't look whether or not she wears pants. You don't look at her dress heels or her flats or sandals or flip-flops. What you do is you see if she's got a meek and quiet spirit. That's the passage. Look at it. But let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament. Here's the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God a great price. You see, that? that's how a woman's supposed to adorn herself. You're saying, are you saying, I didn't say nothing. That's what the Bible said. Gals, that's to be your adorning right there, the meek and quiet spirit. Now you take a woman with a big mouth, brash, forward, loose, and lewd, and they are the ones that ain't adorned right either, are they? It says a meek and quiet spirit. If a woman isn't adorned right, she won't be meek and she won't be quiet. (laughs) She'll be that woman that what? Seeks attention. Now here's the thing. 
If a woman can't get an attention with her apparel, she'll try to get it with her mouth. We doing okay? We're just preaching Bible now. All right? Then that woman, she tries to get attention with her mouth, but a woman that is meek and quiet, you can look at how she dresses, and it'll be modest. I can tell them. I can tell a bunch of them. That's all right there in a King James Bible, back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Second, or I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. You see that adorning, that's interior. Interior, not exterior. <clears throat> Bible says in 1 Timothy 2, 9, in like manner also, they got to have the right attitude about it, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety. Not a big mouth. And the verse says, with shamefacedness and sobriety, that means serious. We're not saying a, a gal or a woman can't kid around, but a woman is to be modest in her apparel and serious about it. Not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. Look at verse uh, 10. Verse 10. But, all right, the great, great conjunction that holds two thoughts together right there. But, which becometh women professing godliness with what? Good works. I'm hope, hoping you're picking a couple things up tonight. We're not looking for a dress code here tonight. We're looking to see what the Bible actually says instead of go with Baptist tradition. And before you think I'm about throwing everything out the window, I'm not. Never have been. But uh, it says, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. The idea of this dressing things is this, that her adornment is to be good works. And their adornment is not the outside. Their adornment is a meek and quiet spirit. That's 1 Peter chapter 3. And their adornment here in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 10 shows their good works. Now the Bible says, whosoever find a wife findeth a good thing. Amen. But that woman, that wife of yours, she can be one of two things. Look at uh, Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs chapter 12. Proverbs chapter 12. Look at verse 4. I remember going to college and that was my life verse. He who findeth a wife findeth a good thing. Of course, he didn't find one yet, but it's wishful thinking. Amen. I remember going to <clears throat> college and a couple of zealot zealous idiots I went to school with we'd go all the way up in the top of the uh, there was uh, I think four or five floors in the dormitory I stayed and there and there was one above that where you'd go up in the uh, what do you the top of the building there and we'd go up there and we'd pray for our wives and we weren't even married yet you say why well, we were straight number one we wanted to get married <laughs> amen <laughs> we wanted a wife I said oh Lord Prepare our wives, you know, for our greatness and all that stupidity. <laughs> but we pray for our wives when we weren't even married yet. And we pray that verse, Lord, you said, whoso findeth a wife, findeth a good thing. And the Lord's like, well, I ain't going to find you up there, you idiot. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 12, look at this, verse 4. A virtuous woman is a crown to her husband. So she's either a crown or what? But she that maketh ashamed is as rottenness in his bones. So that, that wife of yours, she can either be a crown to you, man, or she can uh, be rotten in, in your bones. You see that? So <clears throat> when a Christian, uh, well, I'm jumping ahead of myself here. What you need to realize in an outward manifestation of worldliness and dress is often from a dirty heart. Yeah, I said often. Sometimes it's ignorance, but it's often from a dirty heart. When you see somebody dressed ungodly, now listen, I'm talking about ungodly. I'm not talking about because you differ from what my opinion is. You see what I mean? I'm not going there. Why don't you ask God how to dress? Amen? That's not old-fashioned. But you'd ask the Lord what to do for your life, wouldn't you? Well, why wouldn't you ask him how you should dress? So when Paul says these things in verse 9 and verse 10... Look what he hits in verse 11 and 12. <clears throat> 11, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. Ain't that something? <sighs> verse 12, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. So when a Christian woman, she dresses up for God, she'll please her husband. And uh, when a Christian woman dresses up for God, here, let me, let me uh, show you this verse here. Look at 1 uh, Samuel chapter 16. 
1 Samuel chapter 16. And when we're talking about uh, adorning herself, uh, that thing's on the inside. You see what I mean? And, uh, of course, uh, a lot of people, they just get so carried away with such a dress code that if you don't dress the way they think they should dress, then, you know, you must be a heathen, and you must be worldly, and you must be living like hell, and uh, whatever, you know, help yourself. First <clears throat> Samuel 16, you, you want to see an independent, fundamental, Bible-believing Baptist uh, uh, flip his wig? Go show them over there in the book of 1 Samuel where Saul's the one that wears a skirt. <laughs> Crazy, man. 1 Samuel 16, look at 7. <clears throat> but the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance. You see that? But the Lord looketh where? On the heart. That's a good verse. <clears throat> you ever stop and think why Brother James said what he said over there in James chapter 2? Uh, what did he say over there in 2, 2, 3, and 4? You're not supposed to uh, respect the man with goodly apparel over someone that had the vile apparel on there, right? You know why James said that? He said that because God don't look at you by what you wear. Now look. If you don't want to dress right on the outside, you'll take everything I'm saying as ammunition to do whatever the fire you want to do. And that's not what it's intended for. You see, there's liberty in this stuff. And he said that because God don't look at what you wear. <clears throat> he looks at uh, you by what's on the inside of your heart. So when a woman dresses up for God, it's an interior thing. I'll say it again. When a woman dresses up for God, that thing's interior. It's interior. And then that hidden man of the heart will manifest itself on the outside. Now, a woman, I suppose she could be uh, ugly as a mud fence and be real pretty. Why? Because she loves God. You see that? Amen, amen. But you'll notice here in 1 Timothy 2.9, this modest apparel, which is inside, it also controls the outward conduct. When a woman is dressed right inside, you see a woman professing godliness. You'll notice that she's in subjection in verse 11, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. A woman who's adorned properly on the inside, you see she's in subjection in verse 11. And I hate to say it, but you can usually tell which one is and which one isn't. So you'll see a woman that professes godliness, she's in subjection in verse 11. And then she doesn't usurp authority over the man in verse 12. And of course, most people, when they hit 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, uh, they, uh, a lot of good Bible, they just fall apart. They say, well, that's to the church. It's not to the church either. That's a husband and wife relationship. Look at verse 13. I want you to see that. That context is man and wife. Who you got in 13? You got Adam and Eve, don't you? That's for the husband and wife. All right, that's not the church house. That context is man and wife. It says, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. 1 Peter 3.1 says a woman is to be in subjection to her own husband. And that ain't the local church either. Verse 12 says, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. All right, so like I said, you got 13. You got Adam and Eve. That's first, uh, uh, the first wedding there, Adam and Eve. First husband, first wife in the Bible. And uh, we'll get to uh, verse 13 soon enough. But that wife is not supposed to usurp the authority over her husband. And she'll do that if, listen now, she'll do that if that woman is not modestly adorned. Modestly adorned. And you know, you hear all the jokes. And uh, you hear all the, the funny parts. You know, I'm going to wear the pants. And I'm going to tell them which pair to wear. And, and everyone chuckles. That's not funny. That's not funny. That's not Bible. And uh, you can tell which ones usurp the authority over the man. You know, the man says something in the marriage, and the woman just flat out runs her mouth and wouldn't shut up unless you put an apple in it. Amen. But look at 1 Timothy 2.9. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness 
with good works. Let the women, woman, I'm sorry, <clears throat> let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. Now again, this is the marriage relationship, verse 11 and 12. And you notice that the woman that is adorned in modest apparel is to learn from her husband in silence and all subjection. So what these, a lot of these guys do is they'll uh, say this. They'll say, well, you know, a woman can't teach in the church. And uh, those are biblical morons like Bill Gothard. And that's not true. I take your Bible, I'll show you real quick. Look at Titus chapter 2. You hear a man saying that a woman can't teach in the church, then uh, he's just uh, crippled too high for crutches, or as my brother in Tennessee says, he's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Titus chapter 2. You better have some good women teaching in the church. If not, it's going to be left to a bunch of... Uh, well, I'm getting in trouble here. I'll just let the scripture speak here. Titus chapter 2. A woman is supposed to teach in church. And truth be told, the, probably the reason some of these biblical literates don't want a woman teaching in the church is probably because they're afraid of their women. <laughs> and they don't know how to treat a woman. A lot of men don't know how to treat a woman. And then you got the uh, handful of those that got a dirty heart when it comes to dealing with a woman. And I've met them. <laughs> Look at Titus 2.3. The Bible says, The aged women likewise, that they be in behaviors becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. So in the church, in the church, there are some aged women who have adorned themselves with behavior as becometh what? Holiness. They're not false accusers. They're not peddling lies on Facebook and TikTok. They're not giving to much wine. They're teachers of good things. Teachers of what? Well, what do they teach? Look at it, verse 4. That they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. That's what the woman's supposed to teach in the church. How does she do it? By her modest apparel. You see that? Now that's something else. All right, now something else on this thing here. When it comes to church matters, a woman's not supposed to speak up. You're right, she isn't. In the context of that, what I just said there, so you don't take it out of context, is tongues. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In a church matter, a woman's not supposed to speak up. Now, I understand your, your modern-day news press and all that would call this misogyny and sexism and all that other garbage, but we don't care. We don't run the church by what the world thinks or by what the news media thinks. <clears throat> Tongues is a church matter. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Look at, uh, pick it up in verse uh, 34. 1434. Bible says, Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they're commanded to be under obedience, as, as, as also saith the law. And if they'll learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. The context is directly related to speaking in tongues, which by Acts chapter 28, that thing is done away with. But that's the context, all right? <clears throat> and uh, that handles that matter. She's supposed to be quiet. Back to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter... Now listen, if you love the Lord, this stuff doesn't bother you. You don't think I'm being cruel, and you don't think I'm being a jerk about the thing. I'm just being scriptural. But this thing is not even taught anymore. Matter of fact, unfortunately, in Bible-believing churches, it's assumed that everybody's on the same page, and they're not. So what happens? You have an unbiblical situation many times... And it's because people don't know. All right, <clears throat> 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, the Bible says, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But listen, in spiritual things, a woman can help out. Did you catch that? In spiritual things, a woman can help out. Uh, look at Acts chapter 18. I'll show it to you. Acts chapter 18, uh, verse 25. Over here in Acts chapter 18, you've got a married couple. You've got Priscilla and Aquila. And you know what happens? Uh, Priscilla helps her husband, and they straighten out Apollos doctrinally. They help a, a fellow out, a preacher out, who ends up having a great ministry in the Bible. 1825 to 30. 
All right, now uh, look at 24. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. How about that? He's an eloquent man. It means he's an orator. He's mighty in the scriptures. He knows a lot about the Bible. But you know what? He's just off. He's off a little bit on his doctrine. So what happens? Well, 25. Uh, this man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being uh, fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogues, whom, when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. As a husband and wife, let me tell you what, gals, uh, you can help in spiritual matters. You can help. Uh, <clears throat> a woman's not just supposed to sit under a rock. But a woman can help out. So let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. It's been taken out of context by so many in our own circles. Now listen, if you're going to have your marriage work out, I mean, you want to be a knucklehead, help yourself. You want to go through two or three of them, you know, go for it. Free country. But if you want to want your marriage to work out, uh, or maybe you want to sleep on the couch, I have no idea. But in the marriage relationship, you need to do it biblically, and opinions by husband and wife are both needed. Did you catch it? The opinions by both the wife and the husband are both very much needed. There's nothing wrong with getting your wife's opinion on things. Well, let's just face it. Sometimes your wife's smarter than you on things. Many times. All right. Take uh, your Bible, go to Genesis 21. I'll show you a couple places. Now, you preach like this and you teach like this, and people get the idea that you hate women and you're going to kick them and all that. No, I don't hate women. I don't hate them at all. But let me tell you what, if you take God's side on the thing, then both men have different responsibilities and women have different responsibilities. And there is definitely a different role. And, of course, what is the world doing? They're eliminating gender. Now it's a I, you, he, she, whatever it is. You know, whatever your pronouns are of the day. And I'm constantly getting in trouble where I'm doing a little bit of sub-teaching there. I don't teach anything. I just manage chaos. Amen. And uh, I, I uh, you know, I'm just a, <clears throat> a fun fellow there, you know. And I say, hey, there she is. And it goes... Oh, I'm not a she. I'm going, oh, you're one of them. I didn't say it. I thought it because that'll get me fired eventually. You know what I mean? And you know what I didn't ask? I didn't even ask what its pronouns were. I'm like, oh, okay, you want, okay, all right. You know, all right, do whatever you want, you know. But look at Genesis 21, pick it up in verse 9. And this whole deterioration of gender, man, it, uh, it prevents a real challenge of teaching the Bible. Because whether you want to admit it or not, that stuff is now bombarding you at every pass. You're seeing it, you're hearing it, and it's just, it's just a total contradiction of what the Bible says to do. 21.9, And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, which she had borne unto Abraham, mocking. Wherefore, she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. Now, if you're not careful, you'll think Sarah's just uh, uh, being a, a bad person there. But you know what she's doing? She's telling the truth. Read it again. For the son of this bondwoman, which is Ishmael, shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. So in that passage right there, Sarah's got more sense than Abraham does. You see it? Abraham thinks he can keep the boy around. There won't be any trouble. Can't do it. Why? He's mocking him. And Sarah says what? Kick him out. Cast him out. And Sarah is spot on there. Uh, the boy Ishmael is not going to be with the heir, heir Isaac there. Now watch whose side the Lord takes. Look at 11. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. 12. And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondman. In all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. <laughs> hearken unto her voice. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now, don't you know that Abraham was scratching his head because just a few 13 years ago, I'm sorry, however many years it was back, you know what Abraham did? He listened to Sarah. And it cost him 13 years out of fellowship with the Lord. Had to do with Hagar and Ishmael, right? 
And so uh, I bet you Abraham was scratching his head going, don't listen, do listen, okay, okay. And the whole concept there is, man, you got to know when your wife is siding with the Lord. And when she sides with the Lord, you need to listen to her. But that means you got to know that book just as good, if not better, than she does. All right. <clears throat> and uh, that must have been quite. Let me show you one other time. Matthew 27, 19. Uh, yeah, at least one other time here. 27, 19. Here's another one. Uh, gals, you're not an inferior being. You have a different role. And in the marriage relationship, uh, both husband and wife opinions are both needed. Both are needed. Uh, I've, I've erred both ways. Uh, not confession time, but I've erred in trying to shut her up all the time. And I've erred and just go, okay, you know, do whatever you want. You know, you know, sky's the limit. <laughs> it don't work that way. It don't work that way. 2719, when he was set down on the judgment seat, his, talking about Pilate's wife. His wife said unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? Talking about Jesus Christ. For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. Now that woman, like I said, is Pilate's wife, and she had a whole lot more sense than Pilate did. And she, uh, Pilate should have listened to his wife. But you know what tradition says? You know what history says? Pilate ended up uh, committing suicide. That's tradition. Not in the Bible. It's in the history books. Pontius Pilate committed suicide. I tell you what, you uh, sentenced the Son of God to death, I'd probably lose my scruples too, man. But he should have listened to her uh, overdoing what he did to the Lord. So there's nothing wrong with getting opinion from your wife, amen. But listen, men, when it comes down to making the decisions and the decisions that have to be made, the man is supposed to make the decisions. Take your Bible, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, look, if you think you've got to make the decision on the grocery list all the time, you're going to, you know, we're not being stupid here, but uh, you have to make the decisions. Well, you look at the preacher again, make all the decisions, and she'd be like, go for it, dude. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 11. And some men, they, they're, they're so in charge, and they just got to let her know it every uh, step of the way. I think some of the few uh, early fights in my marriage was because I was trying to remind her who was in charge. <laughs> That's funny right there. Yeah, okay, well, if you've got to remind your wife that you're in charge, there's a disconnect there somewhere. I'm pretty sure she knows that. Amen? Uh, 1 Corinthians 11.3, the Bible says, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. So the man is what? He's the head of the family. Well, she don't listen to me. Well, probably because she sees that you're not in subjection to him. That's the verse. But I would have you know, first of all, I added the first of all, that the head of every man is, you see that? Christ is supposed to be your head man. And then the head of the woman is the man, but the man is the one who reminds the woman that he's the head. And he's actually acting like the other end, amen? And she uh, has a hard time dealing with him because she sees that he's never in subjection to the Lord. Maybe she saw you in subjection to the Lord, maybe she'd listen. Verse 7, something else. <clears throat> for a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. So men, you are to make the decision. And the woman was made for you. Uh, you weren't made for her. That's right. A woman is to follow a man. Scripturally, biblically. All right? It's not chauvinism. This is Bible. And when a man follows a woman, he's biblically cockeyed. I'll say it again. When a man follows a woman, he's biblically cockeyed. And Adam, in this passage here, he was responsible for a decision he made. And God held Adam responsible. <clears throat> he didn't hold Eve responsible. You notice that? Uh, when God came down in the cool of the day to talk to Adam, uh, what did he say? He said, who did he call out to? Adam. I mean, uh, and then when the Lord started talking to Adam, what did he say? He said, what have you done? Notice he didn't say, Eve, what did you do? He knew what Eve did. Why? The man's responsible. The Lord holds the man responsible. The Lord holds the man accountable. 
And so when God began talking to Adam, what did you do? What did Adam do? <laughs> the woman. <laughs> he started dodging it just from the beginning. And so man's always dodged the bullet, you know, dodge responsibility. And that thing goes on and on and on. I'm putting something all to sleep. I apologize for that. But man's been doing it ever since. Uh, <clears throat> look at Genesis 3.16. We'll shut this down. I'll show you something. People hate the Bible. They really do. Some people really hate the Bible. And some Christians really hate the Bible, even though they profess to believe it. You get up there and preach uh, a lot of this on a Sunday morning, you'd be surprised. It'd be uh, quiet like a turkey farm on Thanksgiving morning. Why? You and I are inundated with this idea that all men and women are created equal. Now, they are at the cross, but the responsibilities are completely different. If that's the case, if everyone is just so equal, amen, now we are, like I said, at the cross, that's the case, why wouldn't the woman be held responsible at the judgment seat of Christ for the family? The man's held responsible for the family. Now, if she hindered it or hurt it, she'll give account too, don't get me wrong. But look at this thing, <clears throat> Genesis 3:16. Unto the woman he said, I'll greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, and sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over, the, over thee. All right, so you know what the wife's desire should be? Wife's desire, according to the Bible, should be to please her husband. And, uh, and when she's pleasing you, that means you're in charge. You're running the show. And do you ever stop and think why we got so many uh, divorces in America today? It's because the man won't step out and he won't lead his home. He won't run the family. You know what he does? He makes her do it. He makes her hold up under all the pressure she was never created to be under. He puts her in an anti-biblical situation and then blames her for decisions that she made because he was irresponsible and wouldn't make them. And that's how that thing's a mess. <clears throat> all right, we'll stop right there, uh, verse 11. All right.